Hello and welcome to um, another episode of the Adjutant's Lounge. Um, we've taken a short break just just for, you know, just, just take, taking a chill pill. Um, we're joined today by our French exchange, cultural exchange officer, Gary from Calais. Good morning, Gary. Bonjour, monsieur. It still feels like the 1960s. You're on, I'm on that radio family Facebook <laughs> coming at our house at the door. I'm a man in Boulogne. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it, it you know, it is what it is now. Um, you you are indeed our, our cultural exchange officer, um, and we, we we thank you for taking a hit for the team. Uh, I hope the subalterns are suitably well behaved. Um, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Although, the, um, so you got quite an interesting one with us today because we, you're going to be talking about the um, the Opal Coast in the Nord part of Calais, and it's military history. Now, two thousand year military history that that's something else. I'm not going to do any more because I'm literally going to let you go. Do your thing. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to put you down safely on the sofa now. Uh, now, what we're looking at today, and most people have been there, that's going to be the weird thing with this. Uh, and many of you are going to be aware of a lot of it. Some of you may not be aware of hardly any of it. Uh, and every day's, every day's a, a learning curve. You know, we're, we're, every day's a school day. And uh, this goes back to Many years ago with me, and you, you need to cast your mind back now, uh, to back in the 1970s, 1980s, and the BBC used to have the holiday programme, which I think came in at about seven o'clock, uh, once a week, midweek sort of thing, and they'd do the holiday programme. And what they used to do was, it was, uh, I think Jill Dando was on it at one point. Uh, she was indeed. She and, was, yeah. Yeah, uh, and what they used to do was they'd do three holidays. So it was a magazine-style program. They'd do three holidays, and one of them would be your bucket list holiday. Your bucket. So it'd be climbing Mount Everest or Japan or, or trekking in India, uh, something in America. Yeah, you know, you're talking pre the wall coming down when it started. This sort of thing. So they were, they were quite exotic-style holidays. Yeah, some places. The weird thing being, of course, some places back then. You can't go to now, but you could go to then. And some places you couldn't go back to in the 80s, but you can get but now in our holiday destinations. So they'd go on an exotic one, a really exotic one. Then they'd have one that was the bargain basement, a week in Skegness for everybody else. So, you know, one week someone would fly off to, let's say, India. The next week someone would be sitting in a caravan for two weeks. And the middle one tended to be your average holiday segment. And was mainly Europe. So it be, might be the Med, it might be up in Scandinavia or France. And this was the line they would come out with that I used to grate with me and still does. And because you've got to remember back then, of course, Boulogne Port was open and so was Calais. And it's pre the tunnel as well. And the opening thing they would say was this, come off the ferry hit the main road, the Route Nationale, and drive 100 miles because there is nothing worth seeing for 100 miles. And I could distinctly remember that. There's nothing here. Just hit the N1, turn right, and the first bit of interest in France you're going to meet for most Brits is Normandy. And I thought, well, that, that, that don't seem right to me. It really didn't. Uh, and what happened was, in about the early 80s, 
I mean, I'd been over as a school kid and, and we'd done trying cop uh, in the early 70s and we'd done a few bits, you know, Days to Calais and what have you. Um, but a friend of mine, we, we did this big boys trip around France, bit of a road trip, three of us. Um, and we went about as far east over as Metz. Uh, we done some stuff around Metz. We did the Ardennes. We did Waterloo. Huge big thing down on the Somme and then back up. Uh, and on the way coming back, we had a couple of days to kill. Uh, it, was, it was quite a long trip. And I remember John going, well, do you want to go to Agincourt? We go to Agincourt. Let's go to Agincourt. And, and we drove up to Agincourt. And I remember him saying, nice countryside around here. Almost looks like France. Uh, so it almost looks like Kent. Doesn't look like France. Not what we imagined for this area. You know, we've done Lons, we've done Luce, we've done all, all, all the, the Flanders Plain. And he said, this is weird. And it really does look like Kent around that area. And we're in the Seven Valleys. And then we hit the coast. We had a, a down off on the coast. And we're driving up and down between Cape Grenade um, and Cape Blanc. And it was fantastic. To the point so much that I bought a house in the area where I'm sitting today. In lovely old Amon, uh, in the old village school. And I thought, this is fantastic. This area seems to have so much. And I'm going to show you a little book now that you can see, Ben, but no one else. Oh, can. yes. Oh, Battleground Europe. Oh, that looks lovely. And this is the very first um, Nigel Cave, uh, and it came out in the 80s. Uh, and it gone off with John Giles. And, and they'd done a little bit on the WFA tour, Western Front Association. And he did the very first one, which is called A Battlefield, A Guide to the Battlefields in France and Flanders. Battleground Europe. Now it covers the usual suspects, <clears throat> as you'd expect, uh, up in Belgium, you know, uh, Popperinj, Ypres, up to Dixmunda and around there. But what it did do, and this is what got me, it covered Calais, the channel, uh, cross channel guns, Saint Omer, Castel. And that really opened it up and a bit of Dunkirk. But what it did was, of course, was it went back where they was concerned as far as the Hundred Years' War. And, and that was like someone had taken the sunroof off in the car for me and history. It opened up. And then coming to live here, we've had the house about 20 years. We've, we've been here for 10 years now, over 10 years. Uh, and it opened up what's here. And it's like a best-kept secret that you literally don't want to tell anyone about. Uh, and a friend of mine, he's a, a very, who was a very big, uh, well, still is, Napoleonic historian, chap called Ian Fletcher, he mm. came here for a, came and stay here for a week uh, with his family. And it was in the summer, weather was gorgeous. And he said, and every year he used to go and hire a villa in the south of France. But for this year, he, he, he didn't. And he came here. And he said, if this was the south of France, if you had the weather, guarantee it, it would be better than the south of France. But you don't get the weather. And I went, that's the good point. Because what you also don't get is the crowds and you don't get the prices. So you've got this hidden gem because as most people now come off the ferry at Calais or they shoot out the tunnel, they're going somewhere else driving through. Many are not. You know, you've had the beer weekends and this sort of thing and stuff like that. Uh, but there's a great fund of military heritage, historical heritage in this area. Think of Kent, you know, the guard room of England. Well, 
this whole point of the Opal Coast. And we're looking really from, say, Dunkirk. We could increase it further up. But you're going to be looking from sort of Dunkirk down just onto the tip of the area, the Department of the Somme, uh, which is St. Valerie's uh, Somme. Now, we're talking about the part of Calais. That's a Department 62. Uh, and what they've actually done now, they've, they've made a super department that includes Nord as well. So it goes over about as far as Lille. Uh, and it's one of the biggest departments in France at the moment. Not everyone's happy about that. When are the French happy? Um, <laughs> and not everyone's happy about that for various reasons, because it now includes the Somme as well, uh, or parts of the Somme. So... What have you got here? Well, <clears throat> as I said, years ago, first thing, you, you jump on the ferry, you come out, and you think, what we're going to first look at is, let's say, Boulogne. Uh, now, Boulogne can, can go back actively uh, to a Roman seaport. Can go back before, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but from a medical perspective, quite interestingly, uh, you're looking at somewhere when, when Claudius comes over and invades. And I'm going to, not with a hate frame, dates around. But back as a kid, apparently, I was told when I studied archaeology, um, I was actually told that, that way back, you know, sort of days of the British Empire, one of the dates that, that everyone was taught at school and drummed in was AD 43. And I went, yeah, OK, what's that one? Well, of course, that's the Claudius invasion mm. of England. Yeah, we're going about Caesar. Uh, Caesar would have left from a little bit further down. Uh, down towards around the St. Valerie area. There's a couple of areas around it they may have left from uh, to come over from Gaul to do his little reconnaissance in force. Now, when, when Caesar comes over, just very quickly, of course, uh, he needs to keep an army in being. And to keep an army in being, one of the things you do is you actually use it. So him doing this sort of like propaganda coup in many ways, oh, look what I've done, look what we've, where we've been, uh, was that first thing. But the first serious bit is Claudius from Boulogne in AD 43. And at that point, Boulogne there is literally the gateway of the empire over into the uh, into Britain, as it was then. And what they do there in Boulogne is they set up the classic Classicus Britannicus, which is the Roman fleet. So this major Roman military unit, naval unit, is set up at Boulogne, area around where the old port is. And, and what they used to do when they weren't sort of tying down pirates, keeping the seaways open, checking everything for taxis. You know, you're employing these sailors. What are you going to get them to do? Uh, you know, we can't just pay them and, and they're going to be lounging around. So they set up a company to make Roman roof tiles. And lots of the Roman roof tiles that you see have got the, the stamp of the Classicus Britannicus on them. Right, okay. uh, I always find that quite interesting. So from the time of Rome, uh, you've got a Claudian invasion sets off from Boulogne. Now, the, the, probably the centre of the, the Roman town uh, and, and their temples was if you go to Boulogne today, you look up to the top town where, where the citadel is and you've got the cathedral that we're coming to later and we're looking at an area up around there. Uh, would have been the main you know, Roman defensive works. Um, they would have had temples up there, this sort of thing. And then leading down to the port at the town itself, we had the Classicus Britannicus. Uh, and just to throw a quick one in, in uh, 286 AD, uh, the local admiral throws a wobbly. And what he does, he, uh, he he rebels against Rome and declares himself emperor and king of Britain from Boulogne. So, so there you go. We, we'll claim back Boulogne after what's happening in Jersey or something silly like that, won't we? <laughs> um, so, so Rome then took, like, obviously get collapsed in the Roman Empire. Um, 
Boulogne itself begins to expand along with Calais further along to the top. Um, and the real, for Britain, you've got then during period of 1544-46, it becomes involved with the Italian wars without going into too much detail, uh, where we're aligned at one point with France and then we're not aligned and we're fighting the French because you've got the Hundred Years' War had finished not in our favour. Uh, so we lost whole swarms of France. We're still holding Calais, but we're going to come on to in, in a minute. Um, and at one point, it's, it's perceived a couple of points, but when you've got the lower town and, uh, and the top town, uh, we take it, uh, we hold it. The French try to take it at one point. Uh, and, and that's that top citadel where you can go in. They've got the lovely old market. We're coming to Bonaparte's home in a minute as well. Um, and that's mainly the area around where it was. That's, that would be known as the upper town. And what happens is, uh, the legend is that the French may have paid off some locals, okay, to try and get in. Because when the, uh, the, the English try and fire on the advancing assault party, the cannons blow up. Not very good. Also, most of the soldiers are not there. And it's the women of, of Boulogne that are starting to defend it. And the other great thing, it all gets into the realms of Monty Python. Um, the other great thing that happens is the assault ladders are too short. They can't get up the uh, thing. So, you know, it starts very well. The British and English artillery has gone. Uh, none of the soldiers around, so the ladies get stuck in. And uh, and then, of course, that you haven't got your assault ladders and, and the French disappear back off and, and, and that fails. Um, now, there had been as well, of course, that uh, if you've watched the Tudors, one section of it shows the siege of Boulogne by, by Henry VIII. And, uh, and, and Henry besieges Boulogne, wants to get Boulogne back. And they bring in Italian tunnelers, best tunnelers there are to tunnel under, bring the walls down. And the suit of armour that he wears, funny enough, um, Greenwich armour, uh, you know, he, uh, Henry brings these people over. Uh, so, you know, these guys at the top of their game, sets them up at Greenwich to make some of the finest armour in the world. And the, the armour that he wears at Boulogne, uh, his harness, as it would be known, is actually in. Um, oh, I think I lost you then. Um, <clears throat> his armour is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And you can go and see that. They've got about four sets of Greenwich armour in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But the last armour that Henry VIII used in combat uh, is sitting at Boulogne. Um, we're eventually going to lose Boulogne. <clears throat> Finally, we, we lose Calais. We're going to come back to it a little while later when we, we get on to Montreuil. Um, so Boulogne then goes through uh, various expansions as, as a major seaport used by the French Navy, as you'd expect as well. No stranger to the British soldier, of course. You know, we've already had it as a, as a town and we've besieged it and fought there. Uh, if you go up what, the main road, if you, you come off the port, you've got the old port that was behind you. Looking up the road, the main road that leads up to... Um, into towards the citadel itself. Uh, you've got a church on the right-hand side. That was sacked by the English during the siege of Henry VIII. Uh, and the defensive lines are across that square where the market is um, during the week and on a Saturday as well. And you can see the church there. And there's a memorial to it being vandalised, destroyed by the, uh, uh, by the English during the siege. Now, <clears throat> various changes in France, as you'd expect. And, of course, we're talking about now 200 years ago yesterday, uh, the death of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Well, of course, Bo Bonaparte 
did he or didn't he want to invade England? You know, was it yet another case of setting up this huge army, navy, etc., as a threat to invade England from 1804 up to, you know, 1805 and Trafalgar? Uh, because remember, he leaves from um, that army that, that is camped at Boulogne, goes straight to Germany. Uh, and, you know, you get wars against Prussia, that leads on and on and on. And you can almost put that line straight away through to World War II. But the next phase you look at is Bonaparte. Now, Bonaparte's looking at an invasion, alleged invasion, and sets up a huge camp, massive. Now, this camp goes on for miles. And everyone who's anyone from that early period of around about 1805, 1804, you know, those starting the Napoleonic Wars, its second phase, uh, are there. If you go onto the square itself, you've got the Hotel de Ville behind you. Dead opposite, you've got a very nice house that you can go into now, folks, as well. Uh, and you can be escorted around. And you've got the room where Napoleon uh, used to have his uh, meetings, conferences, that sort of thing. You've got his bedroom there as well. Uh, and that you can go around. And he's got a plaque up there that said in 1804, 18, uh, to 1805, this was Bonaparte's headquarters. So, so quite important you could look at. And just outside uh, Boulogne, as you, as you go up, you'll see to your right-hand side as well, you see the Napoleon's column. Now, the French can be quite weird. And uh, I'll always say there's a term called being world-famous in France. Yeah, you're world-famous in France. They'll claim things like that the Basilica in Boulogne which is fantastic to go and see, site of the Roman temple, visited by 14 French kings, three uh, emperors, that sort of thing as well, have all prayed there. Um, they also say it's the largest basilica outside St. Peter's. Uh, well, I think they really need to look at St. Paul's for that one. It's a bit like saying Jolly Holiday is the next Elvis sort of thing. No, there was only one Elvis there. Um, <laughs> and they'll also say that Napoleon's column is the tallest column, which, of course, is not true either. Uh, but what happened was, in 1804, uh, Bonaparte, showman that he is, has got this huge army uh, encamped outside Boulogne, down as far as St. Valerie, miles almost down onto the tip of the Somme, huge camp at Etapels as well. Um, and what he does, he holds this big celebration, a big parade, uh, and he issues the first Legion of Honours, which we spoke about in podcast one, you know, the French... I'm not going to say the equivalent of Victoria Cross, but it's certainly the, the, you know, yeah. a very high French award. Well, the first ones of those are issued where that column is. Now, that's a museum. Uh, it's weird opening time, so I'm not going to say go there on a certain date and be open uh, because I've never even managed to get in. They've always been closed. I've then gone to the tourist office in Boulogne. They've told me it's open, and I said, prove it. They're phoned and went, oh, there's no one answering the phone. Yeah, so it seems to have its own opening time. But you can wander around. And when they put the column up, and this is, goes back to Louis Napoleon trying to sort of reinvent his uncle's uh, glory for France, the statue of Napoleon was looking towards England. Right, okay. Okay, it was looking out over the sea towards England. And what happened is in 1944, part of the Cinderella operation, naval operations as well, um, when the Canadian Navy are shelling the area outside Boulogne, they shoot the head off the statue. <laughs> Love, really. The Canadians said it was an accident. <laughs> but you can just imagine this guy standing on the bridge of his ship and going, yeah, we'll have that. Uh, <laughs> and off they go. 
So when the statue was put back up post-World War II, it now looks back towards France. So it's looking in to France rather than out to France. So you've got great camps to visit. Uh, that the English put a raid on. Uh, what happened was look, Napoleon's there at some point, and, and he's going to say, what's happening then? You know, show me the barge, you show how it's going to work, let's do an exercise. And they do, outside of Boulogne, and it's the day the Royal Navy decide to turn up. <laughs> and it doesn't go very well for the French, as normal. And uh, it's a, you know, oh, you know, stuff gets sunk, soldiers are drowned, that sort of thing, and, uh, and off Bonaparte disappears. Um, but what he's done is, the, the, what's left behind, of course, is that Boulogne's going to expand, Calais expanding, places like Etarpals, uh, shipbuilding facilities are built there, and the facilities there that are still there today uh, for the fishing fleet that they use as well. So you've got that heritage, and plus there's uh, over towards Hardelow and Ambleteurs. You've got another lovely Napoleonic fort that they put in as well to defend the arbor, um, and that's well worth going. So Ambleteurs just to the north. You drive down to what's left of that old um, Route National N1. Now, Boulogne itself, uh, moving on to the, to the 19, latter part of the 19th century, if you go to the Citadel, park your car, looking back down the town is an amazing memorial for the French military because it's a garrison naval town at this point, as well, remember, uh, Boulogne. And they've got one of the finest, I think, um, memorials for the French and it covers literally every war that the French have been involved in since North Africa in the 1840s wow. by panel by panel by panel so you've got North Africa from the 1840s 1830s you've got the Crimea you've got Madagascar you've got China twice um, you've got all the stuff that's out in the French colonies out in eastern West Africa um, you've then got the Great War as well, and, and there's a separate one for World War One and World War Two. But you've got this lovely memorial, um, and it's sort of looking towards the Citadel as you're coming up from the town. You see it in front of you. Now, if you turn back and look back down the road, you'll go, "Oh my God, there is an Argentinian flag," and there's an Argentinian flag. Now, this is a, and I love this word. It's my favourite word, free. Museum. <laughs> and what the reason the Argentinian flag's there, of course, it's the house where Saint Martin died. Now, Saint Martin was the liberator of Argentina and part of South America. And he, he was chucked out in a coup and he came to France and he lived and died in France. Now, there's a connection, of course, to, to our lads, apart from the 1982 malarkey. Uh, Post great, post the Napoleonic Wars, you've got British veterans, veterans from Europe. They've got no jobs to do. What are we going to do with soldiers? Will the French end up with a French Foreign Legion? Uh, and what happens is there's wars in South America uh, and they need trained soldiers. And there's British soldiers are recruited. That brings in the Mercenary Act. British soldiers are recruited from England to go and fight for San Martin to liberate from Spain. Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in fact, some of the finest soldiers they had fighting there. And if you ever go to South America, go and look at some of those memorials um, in places like Argentina for those wars, uh, their English names on those memorials as well for soldiers that fought and died there. 
chaps that have been at Waterloo, followed, marched through Spain with Wellington. Uh, so you go into the museum, uh, the original furnishings, many of them were shipped back to Argentina uh, in the 19th century when, when Martin has now become a big hero. The bed that he died on is in Argentina. He, he's buried um, in Uruguay, if I remember rightly, because we visited Grave when I was out there. Um, but they've got some interesting bits, and I'll use this word interesting, to do from the Falklands, which okay. shows super Eton Dart sinking British aircraft carriers. Now, I must have missed that bit, but it's this huge naval painting of this Super Eton Dart taken out of British uh, aircraft carrier in 1982. Uh, yeah, OK, lads. Um, <laughs> so, so you've got this, this amazing house as well, free to go in uh, and free to wander around. Now, of course, the next big thing what you're going to look at moving on from that period is obviously for us, people interested from the UK, is the Great War, World War One? Okay, um, some of the early troops uh, arrived at Boulogne. You know, you're only 18 miles across. Uh, there had been a, a, you know, services transporting people across France. You know, to France days out, twinned with Folkestone, this sort of thing as well. Uh, but in 1914, there are some of the early troops turn up in Boulogne. Mainly, most of the lads come through Le Havre by this way, um, down in Normandy. Uh, but there are okay. elements early, early days, around about the uh, 10th, 11th of August, that will turn up at Berlin. Now, of course, we know at that point, and this is quite interesting, every day's, every day's uh, a school day, when I didn't realise this until 1914, uh, until 2014. What happened was, as we all know, Schreifeln plan, Germans come through, invasion of Belgium, you know, a war we should not get involved in. I'll put that out there. Off we go. We get dragged into this war. You can argue both sides for that one. Everyone retreats down towards the Marne. The French are out, uh, French outmaneuver the Germans on the Marne. German supply lines, you know, they're 100 miles from the nearest railhead, that sort of thing. Everyone now sees what's the most important thing. Well, your flanks. Well, one flank is, you know, you, these are huge, massive armies now. You know, not little small armies in the Napoleonic Wars, massive armies. Your flanks are country borders, literally. So you've got Switzerland at one end and the other flank, the Allied left flank, the German right flank, is the Channel Coast. So everyone makes these huge sweep to try and get to the Channel Coast and the Channel Ports. They're going to be important. The thing the British cannot have uh, German major units operating out of, literally, can you imagine? Boulogne, Calais, 18 miles off of Dover. It's going to cause a few problems. Um, so it's huge charge back up to the coast. Now, it got to a point. Now, at Boulogne, we are told this fact. At Boulogne, it's when some Irish troops come in and land, they're singing, it's a long way to Tipperary. And it's the first time it's meant to have been heard sung by British troops in the field. It, a song that had come out a year or so before. Um, and the French girls are hearing this uh, and they're going, what, what are they singing? It's a long way to Tipperary. And they go, war is not a game. Because at this point, you know, the French have had, what, 28,000 casualties on one day. They're heading for a million casualties before the end of the year. And the French girls are going, the women, this is not a game. We have no men here. And literally one thing the guys will say, they noticed, Boulogne, Calais was a town of children, boys, and old men, everyone else had gone. 
And what happens is when the, when the Germans that are pushing down, they get stopped up near Varun, Ramskapel, and at Dixmunda, I find it's very difficult. But Calais and Boulogne were declared open cities. Which I always find when you, you know, if you're not aware what an open city is, many of you will be. But an open cities mean it will be abandoned and not defended. So France declare Boulogne and Calais an open city. And it's an open for I think it's about a week. Uh, it's got that status. And what eventually happens is cracking fighting by the French up at Ramscapel, which is you know, he's on the coast part of what I, I call the Crimson Coast, this bloody coast of, uh, of the North Sea. Very worth going up to. You've got a, a French admiral in charge of an English fleet. Shell the Germans as they're coming across. You've got uh, French marines, French colonial troops fighting up there. Uh, and the Germans are stopped in October of um, in September 1914. Uh, and, and everything, you know, the status quo comes in and you end up with this front that's, you know, 400 miles long. Um but Boulogne itself now becomes a major in and out, along with Calais, we're going to talk about later, for the British Army. Uh, and if you're standing up on the Citadel and you're looking down onto the new town, there's a headland over to your left, over towards Le Portel. That was a huge camp. You had a massive amount of stores there. Uh, there was a couple of training grounds up there, but it was a big storage area and it was your way in. So many people that had relatives when they when they do you know i'm in my father's footsteps and he come over in 16 you're probably talking about if not down at the half you're talking about boulogne and, and, and calais where they're coming in and going out there were hospitals set up in some of the casinos down on the front one dead opposite the uh, the bigger nausicaa center there was a hospital opposite there lots of the buildings in calais if you go up opposite the church on the left hand side there's a a tablet for where a British headquarters Boulogne was set up as well. And also, quite importantly for the Americans, there's a plaque. If you go in, and I, I got in there when there was an exhibition on, if you go into the, um, what was the old ferry terminal, there's a plaque where General Pershing first lands in France. Okay. So you can argue the first American soldiers that land in France land at Boulogne. Okay. which is, is quite important. Now, also, you've got to look at totally on the opposite. It's from Boulogne, where the unknown warrior, the unknown soldier leaves on his journey to Westminster Abbey. And there's a plaque there for that. And in fact, the citadel uh, that, that had been used for, at that point, you know, 800 years, is the overnight resting place, the last night he spends in France of that unknown British soldier is at the Citadel in Boulogne. And there's a plaque there saying this is where the coffin laid overnight before being transported down onto the, the, uh, the, the port, where there's another plaque where Pershing landed uh, a year or so before, where he leaves on HMS Verdun to go back to, to, to England. So it's quite moving if you've done all the battlefield tours yeah. to stand there at the Citadel and think, the unknown warrior left from here. Now, so throughout the Great War, uh, huge naval involvement, hospital ships coming and leaving from that area as well, going back to Folkestone. Um, there was also what you find there as well at Boulogne. Um, because of how well the Navy had done and how important the port was, 
they set up in 1938 a huge figure of Britannia overlooking the port. And as okay. you come into the port, uh, 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 to overlooking, as you come into the port off the ferry in the, 20, in the 1930s, for about 18 months, you would have seen this massive figure of Britannia guarding the seas. And everyone goes, well, where is it now? Well, the Germans blew it up in 1941. Yeah, they went for a stage, didn't they, of getting rid of stuff in, that they didn't like in France. Well, they they they, they got rid of a huge amount of, of um, a huge yeah, a huge amount of memorials, though, didn't they? They did. I mean, we're going to come yeah. on to the General Hague statue later. Um, yeah. Actually, when we, we we quickly look at Montreux, but yes, they did. Uh, and there's also one another one locally that we're going to talk about as well as you go further south. Um, so then, Boulogne itself. Um, <clears throat> through the Great War, terribly important. You've got headquarters, buildings there. You've got the old port. Now, one moving story I normally tell when we're going through with people at Boulogne as well is when you look at 1915, and we all know, you know, the British Army, you know, it's an army of empire. It's a police force. Uh, you get the Kitchener battalions. You know, Kitchener wants a, a, you know, 100,000 men, gets half a million and this sort of thing as well. Uh and I remember a mate of mine, his grand used to have a go at her sister who never got married. And she used to say, Kitchener wanted 100,000 men. You, love, couldn't even get one because she never got married. <laughs> That's brutal. Don't you very often, is it? Um, so I always look at the, uh, the men of Dorking from the, uh, the East Surrey Regiment yeah. in 1915. And I always, always spare a full moment for them. Um, when I'm at Boulogne, and I look up that huge hill uh, leading right up to the top where, where the motorway is. Um, and for people that want to you know where, if grandfather landed at Boulogne, well, he would have gone up that hill as the men of Dorking did. Uh, because what happens is they're, they're you know, lads from Dorking, quite middle class, country lads as well, joined up into their battalion in the East Surreys, um, training in England, do a big parade up at the race course. At Epsom, sent off to France in September of 1915. And their journey literally was off the troop ship, march up that hill. And, you know, you look at stand at the bottom of that hill and try and do that now. We'll do it in your full pack and rifle, yeah, up to the top of that hill without stopping, which they did, where they're literally given a cup of tea, a sandwich, a literally a couple of hours sleep, put onto a train, sent over towards French Flanders to a town called Luce, where they stopped 25 miles short, march, and are thrown straight into the largest battle the British Army had ever fought since Waterloo. Can you imagine that today? When you think about it, you know, just, just... Without trying to sort of wax lyrical or or, or glorious, because I, you know, that that a was some achievement um, in a lot of respects. But you, you know, the, the actual these are not professional soldiers. Exactly. These 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 are literally, like you say, they were young men who probably li literally months before had perhaps not all of them been planned to be there. They'd, they'd been thinking about the coming year and the harvest. Um, their thoughts weren't. Um, at that location, that they were, they were like you say, they were in Surrey. They were on the farms. They were on the estates. Um, 
And, and there's there's almost a, a bittersweet moment to the way you've described that. You know, literally men half less than half our age, men who could be our, our own sons. Um, you're just getting off a boat and going straight into battle. It's into the largest battle that the British yeah. army um, had ever fought in. That's what I, I find difficult to, you know, when we look at the planning and, and you know, we know it's a huge learning curve um, for the British army. But I always use that point of, of the Dawkins lads, the East Surrey battalion, battalion of the East Surrey regiment. Uh, I think it's the ninth uh, who, who, who come off at Boulogne, and which wouldn't have been in isolation, but this is a, a pretty spectacular one. Of you know, you, you've you, you join up in a year before, no longer than a year before, probably around about 11, 10 months or most, and some of them even shorter, um, to do the training in England, you know, lines of communication, route marches, that sort of thing as well. Um, to get off a boat in the dark, to go up a hill, be given a cup of tea few hours kit on a train, train drops you about 20 miles short of the largest battle the British Army are ever involved in, and then to be thrown into the Battle of Loose. And you know there's never going to be a happy ending to that. No, it, it's... I, I, the Battle of Loose is one of those battles we should talk more about, I think. Oh, um, God, without a doubt. There is. The Somme... Eclipsed it for, for a whole range of reasons. Um, the, the many and myriad, um, but losing itself, like you say, it, it was it was it was almost sort of the last stand of the old guard, wasn't it? Really, the old way of thinking. Um, and well, it was. You've got, I mean, you've got you got new and old. You know, yeah. you've got the regular stuff. You've got the first use of the Welsh Guards. You know, first English use in theory of gas. Um, but then you, you go and stand up at loose which comes under part of Calais Nord, and you look across this billiard table of a battlefield and thinking to yourself, what were they thinking of? Uh, and it almost nearly worked. You can argue that as well, that there was certainly success. And there's this argument about the, uh, the reserves not being put, put, put up and Haig desperately trying to get the, uh, the reserves in and issues with French and this sort of thing, which finally is going to say, like, French, that's it, mate, you're off. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm no longer going to support you in that way. Um, so there is that turning point, I think, at loose uh, from there, which is then going to find us on the Somme. Um, and the British Army at this point is beginning to change. But it's the first big blooding of the uh, of the Kitchener battalions. First yeah. big blood. It's not their first blooding, of course, but it's their first major blooding at loose of many of these lads. And of course, you've got John Lennon's grandfather. You've got the uh, the Kipling lad who disappears there as well. The Queen Mum's son, uh, Queen Mum's uh, brother, rather. Uh, he's up there as well, the Bose Lion lads. So you've got all of that. Now, officers leading from the front. You've got these, the VCs with, you know, the Piper lad. Everyone talks of. You've got all of that going for it. So this is this change. It's 1915, um, which I think is an amazing year for the British Army in many ways. Still fighting in cloth caps, that sort of thing, yeah. you know, as well. Um and, and if it had all gone very well at, at loose, uh, it would have been, I think, uh, uh, seen as a completely different battle and not almost one of these battles that gets pushed to one side, overshadowed by the likes of Ypres and, uh, uh, and the Somme. It's good now that people are looking at it. But, in, say, Boulogne yeah. and the men of Dawkins 
would have would have moved off from from there. So Boulogne's got a, a hell of a lot to look at when you're there. And always stand if you buy that French War Memorial, um, the one that not not the war the military memorial that covers from North Africa right the way through um, up to the Crimea in China 1900. Uh, the the local regiment is the Eighth Regiment of Foot. Well, look to that road to your left and just imagine all those lads for years. Coming up that road, you know, we go on about men marching through the, the, the men in gate. Their first sight of France, first feet in France, was that road up at Boulogne. That's where it was, up at Boulogne. Um, so, yeah, uh, now, now then, I'm, I, yep, yeah, I've got what I've got to do. Um, sorry to interrupt. It's, um, I'll, I'll share a link to, to this, this, this memorial, uh, Boulogne Massimere Memorial du Souvenir Francais. Am I? Is that the right one? There are two. There's the one for the Second World War, which is almost opposite the cemetery at Boulogne, and then there's one near the Saint Martin House as well, which is the major uh, French memorial. Just for, uh, I think they all come under souvenir Francais now. But it, it's the one. It's for um, it's for the French military from literally the 1830s up to 1914. Is that the one, is that um, Le Monument or more? That's the Monument for the Dead. That's the Great War one. Right. What I'll do, within, I'll, I'll, send, I'll put a couple of um, links towards these and, and, and uh, hopefully I'll actually be able to find find because because there's a huge uh, the reason why I'm struggling there's just a huge amount of memorials in the in the Boulogne area um, that's, that's it there is I mean, and, you know, and that's uh, quite sad in, in so many ways isn't it oh yeah which uh, what really annoys me you know this comment from the holiday program drive 100 miles yeah when you've got I mean the cemetery you've got at, um, uh, at Boulogne you've got Grenfell in there you know, the, 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 the chap, the poet, who, who said, oh, um, you know, what, what is, it, I think Grenfell's poetry was of its time. You know, yeah. war to him, he was going through that. It's like a game. Yeah, it, it, it's like a, a very interesting picnic almost. Yeah. Uh, but well, Grenfell's in there. Possibly the first nurse to die in the Great Wars in there. If you walk in through the door, it's next to the communion. It's next to the, the major French civilian cemetery. You've got the cemetery on your right-hand side. You walk in, you literally follow the Great War from 1914 to 18. You've got uh, one of the Rolls-Royce lads is in there uh, from one of the families. You've got the first nurse on your right-hand side who's a sister. She's a 1914 death. Got to be. I think she's the earliest nurse casualty of the Great War. Um, you've got a couple of VCs in there. There's a George Medal winner in there, George Cross winner in there. Further down on the right-hand side, for the World War II lads who got a uh, George Cross in India for um uh for it was actually uh, would have been the Albert Medal but it was replaced for the George Cross when 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 they replaced it. it's on his gravestone is the George Cross there's Jesse Schultz in there the lad who, who they execute the shot at dawn quite rightly so I would argue quite rightly so uh, for leading the riot or certainly one of the ringleaders of the right down it's our blood that we're going to come on to he's in there way down on the left hand side you've got Local French lads in there. You've got Polish airmen in there from World War II. You've got lads that have been washed up from Dieppe. You've got the Cinderella campaign lads in there from 1944. You've got lads in there from 1940 in that one cemetery. All the, the stones are laid down on the ground. Many of them are because there was issues with subsidence. 
So that's a cracking cemetery to spend an half an hour in and just have a wander around. Uh, that literally all my, and the dates follow the major offensives of the war. That's really weird because it's a huge hospital site, remember? Yeah. So all these guys, majority of these guys in there have died of wounds. But literally, they do go from, you, know, sort of, you can see October 14, November, 1st Ypres. Then it goes into the early 15 battles. And there's rows of these guys. And then you, not too many from the song, because many of them would have gone down towards uh, Rouen. But chaps who are then involved in operations around us to do with the off with the Somnus up in Belgium as uh, diversionary attacks, that sort of thing. You've got chaps from Luz there right the way through to the end. Um, and it's just off from the Citadel. You see the signs for it. Get on the internet. Commonwealth War Graves, uh, Berlin. Superb guys. Near the, uh, you've got Tech Turn, which is near where the uh, Bonaparte one is. There's got Russian lads in there from the First World War as well. Uh, got some interesting World War II lads in there, uh, of course, but that was a, a, a cemetery where they brought people in from around the air itself. It was a concentration cemetery. Um, now, Boulogne eventually will fall in 1944 to the Canadians. Uh, and, of course, everyone thinks, and this is the thing with the Opal Coast, when it gets after Normandy, you get a breakout. Where's the sexy campaign going to be? Paris. Yeah, you can argue the end of the, the end of the Normandy campaign is the fall of Paris uh, in the last week in August 1944. That to me is the end of the Normandy campaign, fall of Paris. Well, that's the big sexy campaign as well. That's going to get you on the front page of the newspapers. But what happens, of course, you've got this issue is you need to clear these channel ports as well. So right. you get the. And we're jumping ahead of ourselves ever so slightly, but it tends to be what we do. Um, so you get this, they call it the Cinderella campaign. And it's mainly Canadians, a few Polish lads as well. And good old 79th Armour Division, the funnies, who are then going north along the coast, clearing these ports out, because you've got, remember, all of the uh, German cross-channel gun sites, the biggest bit of the Atlantic Wall, so all that needs to be cleared. And there's all these stories, you know, the funnies with the petards firing the uh, flying dustbins at these things and the big one of um, Battery Tote where the uh, Canadian colonel's meant to come up and bang on the door, which is complete myth. Didn't happen, but that's what they'll tell you there. What happened was the shells were going into the bunker and flying around on the inside. And the Germans think, I think we've had enough of this, thank you very much. And uh, we're going to put up the right flag. Yeah, but what happens is, what, what we do know happened, and there's a memorial in the, in Boulogne, in the Citadel, was that the French resistance guide in, and this is like shades of the Dirty Dozen, they guide in Canadian assault troops through the sewers. Good grief. And they come up in the centre of the Citadel. Can you imagine? It's sort of like top flinging up these Germans standing there, and these, these, these Canadian lads appearing. Um, so that's the last thing in the Citadel itself. So we covered Boulogne uh, as much as we really can. Yeah. Um, you've got then, and if we look at Calais, slightly further north, which is the other great port that you come in as well. Um, now, Calais itself, of course, was besieged. Uh, <clears throat> I hate to throw dates at you, but very few that I do. 1347 under Edward III. Uh, from September to August, uh, 46, finally falls in in 47. That's quite important, that siege, in many ways, because you've got down 
uh, at the start of the Hundred Years' War, you've got this uh, very great successful battle for the English, the Battle of Cressy, which is actually just on the edge of the Seven Valleys. So it, it would come in with what we would talk about. And, of course, all of a sudden what's happened with Cressy, people start to take a look at the English. Yeah, we're no longer this little island stuck off the, uh, you know, all of a sudden, hang on a minute, you know, uh, this, this battle has been won using the English stroke Welsh longbow. Yeah, defeated this uh, incredible French host uh, for all sorts of reasons, you can argue. Great battlefield to go to. You've still got the tower there. Uh, Edward III parades on his little pony the day before to show to the lads, I'm not going to disappear off, that sort of thing. And uh, and the French are defeated at Cressy. You get the blind king of Bohemias killed at Cressy. Uh, he's, he's one of the heroes. He's, he's this great guy that cut a sway through European um, uh, knighthood through, through, you know, sort of battles everywhere. He's never been to Bohemia, by the way. He's from Belgium. Uh, but he's the blind king of Bohemia. Uh, and, he, and all he says to his, uh, his lads are, all I want to do is lay my sword on the English line of battle. Take me to the England. Now, there's a blind king that can't see, has said to his retainers, I mean, this is like stuff out of Game of Thrones. Take me forward to the English line where I can lay my sword on the English line of battle. And he does, and he gets killed. Now, that was, that's John of Bohemia, isn't it? Yeah. Now, you'd have yeah. thought his lads would have said, look, he don't know where <laughs> he's going. Let's take him somewhere else. <laughs> and we can get out of this. Um, and, of course, what happens is, it, it, we, whether he's killed actually at the battle or dies later that day in, in the English camp. Um, but the uh, the Prince of Wales comes up and he, and he takes, there's three feathers on uh, John John's helm. And he takes those off and uses them as his own symbol. And there is a little memorial for where that uh, is meant to have happened. So that's actually got a link there to the Prince of Wales, that sort of thing. But yeah. after Cressy, and it's a, a huge, great victory. Can't deny that. Yeah, it, it, it really is. It, it, it's such a shudder um, because there's a game change now where, where the knight is beginning no longer to be the queen of battles. The longbow's coming into its own now and has really proved its worth. Um, and they go and besiege Calais. Now, if you go to Calais, uh, where you stand by where that amazing Hotel de Ville is, so you've come off the, uh, the well, you come off, the, you, you, let's say you've come off the ferry, you've got it, you're directed in the centre, you see this massive fairy tale tower, absolutely huge thing, Keller. It's where General de Gaulle got married, by the way. <laughs> okay. And, and being France, you can go and have a wander around it. And you go in there, and it's literally Game of Thrones. And I took my eldest, the youngest daughter there, she said, Dad, I want to get married here. She said, Put my name down for this one. Um, it's absolutely amazing inside. Now, funny enough, it wasn't completed completely until after the Great War, but you see it on lots of images, and lads from the Great War would have known it, British lads who were there. Remember, it's a major in and out for, uh, uh, for us during the Great War. Uh, it wasn't completed until after the war, but they would have seen this amazing tower, which you can go up the tower, by the way, cost you about four euros, get the lift up, Amazing views, absolutely amazing. Really brings 1940 home, that sort of thing, and 44 yeah. as well. Uh, so that's well worth doing. Get yourself into the Hotel de Ville. Uh, as I say, De Gaulle gets married in there as well. Now, what you're more or less on at that point is the siege lines for 1347. Right, Edward okay. 
And, and, and the famous thing is now, outside the Hotel de Ville, you've got this incredible statue, work of art, which is the Burgers of, uh, of Calais. And the story goes with that is, is that, you know, back, uh, back in those days, medieval siege warfare, and of course it went on and on and went on. Um, if you've got a successful breach that was deemed to be a successful breach, because uh, siege warfare is a horrible bloody warfare, and you then offer to the, um, uh, to the besieged, look, you know, we can come in when we want to, we've got to put an assault in, but if you surrender now, you surrender now, we'll, uh, uh, you know, we won't kill everybody, we won't run rampage through, and, and off you go. Well, they decide to carry on the siege. So uh, the point's going to be, when the English get in, it's going to be no holds barred. You know, kill everyone, do whatever you want to do. You're literally no holds barred. Um, and eventually we're told that the six burghers, these are the, the people that would have controlled the most important people in Calais, come out to the siege lines dressed in sackcloth sack, and ashes, roped together to go up to Edward III and say, look, you know, blame us. Do what you want to us, not to the, uh, not, not to the town itself. And Philippa of Hainal, who's his queen, he's meant to have rushed forward and said, no, save them. This is now an English city, an English town. And, of course, Calais now becomes an English town for over 200 years. And that amazing memorial, and there's a link to the Great War, by the way, chaps, that amazing memorial is there today and is absolutely priceless. And it was done by Rodin. And, of course, done in kiss and that sort of thing as well. Yeah. And the guy that worked on it and restored it also did the Earl Hague statue in montreux sur and works on the Eiffel Tower. So, it now becomes an English town, and it's a major inn, as you can imagine, right the way through the Hundred Years' War. And now, if you look at the uh, <clears throat> certain roles and that sort of thing for the buildings that are listed there, people are encouraged to go and live there and farm uh, around the area as well. And you get, you know, all the pubs are called the Red Lion or the Henry or the Edward and that sort of thing. So Calais there is, is a major French hold um, in France. Now, moving then on through the Hundred Years' War, of course, very quickly as we can, various things. We're very good at spectaculars, by the way, during the Hundred Years' War. And we certainly do push forward our victories, Cressy, Agincourt, a few others. But we, we, we tend to not talk about our defeats because at the end of the day, we <laughs> lost. Yeah, you got to think, you got to remember that. We did lose chat. So, yeah, okay, Agincourt, Marvellous and all this sort of thing. Um, but of course, what you then do get, <clears throat> which brings it into colour, is that uh, Henry V, as we know, just over 600 years ago, uh, <clears throat> he does what's called a chevouchet. Now, a chevouchet is a, basically a ride. And what you do, you, you, you're showing to the locals that you're actually in command. It's you. you, you I can ride across doing whatever I want to do. And Henry V comes over to do a chevouchet, uh, besieges down on uh, just outside the harbour on Fleur, you know, fill up the breach of our English dead, that sort of thing. And he's got to do something after this. You know, Honfleur's fallen, or Harfleur rather, uh, has fallen, uh, and that's gone. So what do I do now? Well, do I go back to England? And, you know, we're not really sure what's going to happen here. Um, or do I do something else? Could I march on Paris at that point? We don't know. Um, but what he does, Henry V, and he must have been an amazing uh, motivational speaker, 
he takes his army on a ride north. Yeah. Uh, and he goes across what he's the, the uh, he tries to do what his old, what, what Henry, uh, Edward did back in 1347. Uh, and, and he wants to cross because Cress is almost down on, on the top of the Department of the Somme. Uh, and it's you cut by these rivers, Somme being one of them. Uh, and he wants to cross on the, on the coast areas the same as what Edward did. But the French are on their game at this point, uh, and they're, they're, they're getting their their host in, in in position, and they put a blocking force up at where Edward had gone across before near Saint Valery's Sumer, Sumer rather, Sumer. Sorry, I apologise there. Uh, he, he puts his up, he lays up at Saint Valery, uh, where uh, the river crossing there, and Henry V can't cross the army there. So what do you do now? Well, he can't go back to uh, back down towards Le Havre and, and Honfleur. He, he's going to have to go up towards Calais. So he's in a real predicament. Uh, and the, the, the army of probably, you know, we, we, figures are not too good on this. We, we may talk anywhere between 7,000 up to 15,000. Let's say we, we go around about 7,000 figures in his army. Uh, we're not too sure what, what he can do. He's not got many options left. And what he does is he goes, we'll go in, lads. You're going into the lion's den. And he ends up around about Peron. And that's where he crosses the River Somme. And from where he crosses the River Somme, he then starts heading up towards Calais. Knowing full well now that the French hosts are coming in from all over to try and block him getting into Calais. And it's not going to end very well for him if if he stops. Now, what Henry does, he manages uh, uh, to cross one of the last rivers he needs, sort of place, uh, Blengel, which we're going to come on to later, where the real, the, uh, I'll, I'll say, one of the uh, the sharp characters in the Napoleonic Wars is buried. Uh, and, and they're coming up in this date in October uh, as they're crossing the, the, the river at Blengel, and you can still go there today. And he realises he's got a problem because what they're looking at this army, this ragtag army at this point, you know, they've, they've got dysentery, uh, they're hungry, they're cold, you know, it's October, uh, the weather here can change literally on a sixpence. As they come across uh, across the river at Blengel, the, 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 the marsh has been turned over with the effects of thousands of horses. And that can only mean one thing, in front of you are the French. Now, what, what, what are you going to do then? You, can you imagine, you know, you've marched halfway across France, you're about two days' march from the coast, and the road you're going along, where you cross the last river that you need to cross, you can see the mud, or the, the ground churned into mud, where there are thousands of horses in front of you. And that can only mean one thing, the French are there. Now, what the French should have done at this point, of course, is stops on the high ground, but they didn't for reasons that we don't really know. The French pulled back towards a little village called Tramcourt, with Agincourt on there, the village of Agincourt on their right, yeah, and gave literally a battleground for Henry to fight on. And it was quite a narrow ground, quite a narrow front. You got Tramcourt woods to Henry's right, and to the left you've got the village of Agincourt. Now, I will argue that the battlefield they show you today is that battlefield. Uh, there's a French guy who's an absolute lunatic 
uh, who was in charge of the Agincourt Museum. And he's a very weird French guy. Uh, we, we do have a bit of history. And he, he tried to push the battlefield miles away so he'd get his name out there. But no, I, I will go with everything with the geography and the old maps and the new maps. And, you know, I walk all over all the time. The battlefield they show you is the battlefield of, uh, of 1415. Now, what Henry's got to do, time is not on his side. Time is not on his side. Agincourt itself, you're about, oh, 50 minutes drive from Calais. So it's quite doable on your day over if you want to do it and well worth going to. Um, so Henry's option is he's got to move on. You know, he's got to get going because there are going to be more and more French troops, levies, knights, all coming in to, to block his way. And he's going to give battle. So there's all sorts of myths to do with it. You know, what do we know? A lot, Most of it comes from Shakespeare and this sort of thing as well. But because he hasn't got time, because he hasn't got time, he needs to be seen to doing. And what happens is where the English camp set up, there's a tower there at the moment, and, and the line of battle, we think is in three separate battles. Uh, there they are in front and facing with this huge French host, host on quite a narrow frontage, as we let to believe. Now, we're, we're understood that there is a plan that was found in the Louvre a few years ago, a medieval battle plan, where the French were meant to do some sort of advance to the front on foot and sending out uh, some riders, some mounted infantry, to come round Henry's flanks, which probably would have worked quite well, actually, holding action at the front and, and then to come round on the, on the flanks. That probably would have worked. But it all goes terribly wrong. Um, no one's really sure in the French army who's in command. Is it the Constable of France? You know, the, the way the French army's work, or the French host is working at that point. You know, they've been playing dice the night before. Uh, who's going to capture Henry? Who's going to kill Henry? Who's going to capture various people? And, and this uh, rejoicing is heard in the English camp. And they're not probably too happy, the, the English. They're thinking, oh, my God, you know, these, these guys have already won. Look at the confidence they've got. They're going to ride straight over us. Um, so what Henry does, he realises he hasn't got time. And eventually, he moves his men on from the camp. So they'd have set up their line in three battles. His uncle's there. He's got one. Um, Henry's there with, it, with, uh, with some other relatives as well. And what's he going to do? Well, what he does, he advances. Henry advances forward. Uh, and what seems to happen is uh, he, the, the staff is thrown up in, in front, you know, literally like, we will advance. The, uh, uh, the archers will go forward. They may have had these small stakes in front of them as well that they're going to put to, as, yeah. um, uh, to, to stop, you know, as, a, as almost like a, a little mini defensive work around themselves. Now, the French see this, and the French, uh, of, of all that morning, beginning, you know, a two-in and a frame of what are we going to do? There, there seems to be some confusion. The mud up there is quite treacly as well. That's going to come into play. And all of a sudden, and the figures, you can band figures around all sorts with, with, with Agincourt uh, to how many are involved, but certainly the French have got superior numbers. And these guys are on foot. Very few of them are mounted. You know, forget these French cavalry charges and everything else, like that you had at Cressy. They'd learn. And the French men-at-arms and the French knights begin to advance through the mud. 
Now, at this point, the um, the English archers, of course, you've got the element of Welsh archers. We can't miss those chaps out as well. Uh, range of, you know, the, the English longbow itself is a devastating weapon. It's literally an arrow storm because what you're doing is you're, you're actually breaking up the advance in front of you. You're doing it if, an, if a, a longbowman can fire up to, you know, sort of five arrows, six arrows a minute. You've got 7,000 archers. Literally do the maths. What you're doing is almost like a medieval phalanx is you're cutting out an area, a block, and anything in that block is going to be doing one or two things, either dead or it's going to die. Yeah. And as the, the French start to come in, some of the armour will be able to, to knock off an arrow. We do know that. But the problem the French have now got, uh, and the way it works as well, if you bring your visor down, and I've actually done this, <laughs> uh, all of a sudden it's cutting off your vision. You can't give orders, you can't hear any sort of thing. So many of the lads that the French unit commanders, for better want of a better word, visors up until that last minute. Now, what happens is the first assault or one of the assaults does reach the English line of battle. And there's this absolute ferocious melee. Henry's knocked to the ground. His, his crown's cut at one point. Uh, his un- uh, People come to his defence. His, his uncle's going to get killed as well, Duke of York. He's buried in uh, Fresan Church, or bits of him are buried in Fresan Church. And the French reach the battle line. And there's also almost a crisis at this point. Uh, it's overcome, and the English line holds. You then get this issue with more and more French people pulling in. So actually, even though you've got these 10, 20,000 Frenchmen, only the people in very isolated areas are actually doing anything to fight the, the, the English. Because most of them are a bunch of nomads at the back, like a big crowd who can't go forward. There are a number of French assaults that eventually, after that first one's gone, um, I really think the writing's on the wall at this point. We then start, we may have had an issue at this point that they might have been running out of arrows, so the lads get stuck in to retrieve arrows. They get in amongst the wounded that are there, giving them a coup de grace. Now, what happens at some point as well, the local uh, baron, uh, squire, uh, he he has an idea of raiding the French baggage, the English baggage train. He's the lad from uh, from from Agincourt, and he leads some of the locals into the baggage train. And what happens is, the cry goes up: the French are in our rear. And Henry gives an order because you know there there are uh, there there are thousands of prisoners who are just sitting down. There's arms and swords and whatever scattered everywhere, and he gives the order to kill the prisoners. Now, some of these prisoners are worth millions in ransom. And a lot of the lads are thinking, forget, oh my God, we're killing prisoners who have surrendered. A lot of them are thinking, uh, that's my pub in Essex out the way if he goes, you know, because I'm going to ransom him for a lot of dosh. Um, And and in the end, eventually, he has to get a very hard core of archers to go in. Now, the French will band about all sorts of figures and, oh, my God, it's a war crime for getting Soissons, where the French had done exactly the same thing and, and murdered, um, butchered, literally butchered uh, uh, Bowman in the square at Soissons. They tend to forget that, the French. Uh, but it may have been a, a couple of hundred, no more than that, <clears throat> if that actually, uh, and these prisoners were, were, were executed because Henry's worried. All of a sudden, these prisoners could have started grabbing weapons 
And, and they're literally, you know, outnumbering him at this point. One of the lads, and it's, it's always quite sad, a guy, um, he's the richest man in France, a young lad. He wants to get to the battle. This is the French all He wants to get to the battle. He wants to be seen to be doing. And he's left his retinue behind. Hasn't got his armour with him. Uh, grabs hold of a, um, uh, uh, literally a flag to put on himself with his family coat of arms on. Goes crashing into the fray. Gets wounded. He's the richest man in France. And the English capture him. He's quite badly wounded. He's put into a little hut that's on the battlefield. And the hut catches fire and he's killed. Oh and he would have been one of the uh, the rich. He's, he's seen rushing onto the battlefield going, it's a bar, it's a bar, it's a bar. Um, and and he, he, he was a great loss. Uh, it's a huge loss amongst the French. Uh, eventually, what we know, you know, the French are going to break off uh, and, and they'll peel away from the battlefield. And the day is Henry's. Um, Henry will spend uh, the night on the battlefield. People will get what you know, sort of loot in the battlefield, that sort of thing as well, and make their way then on to Calais. Now, Calais itself, so that's it's a great victory, uh, and it certainly does put England on the map in in that way. With people now looking, you know, it cements that the longbow uh, as well. Now, there's a big argument, remember, a big argument, remember, as could the longbow have carried on into use even into the Napoleonic Wars. Because when you consider what you can do with a longbow compared to what you can do with a, a musket, yeah. Who who now? Just 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 very quickly. Who was the? the there there was that, uh, and his name escapes me because there's a lovely photograph of him charging a beach with a longsword. Um, yeah, um, British commander. He, he 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 was because he used a longbow, didn't he, at, at Dunkirk? He did. Um, and <laughs> and he, he got a kill with it as well. <laughs> It's, it's a very good book, uh, written by um, Ch- I think it's Charles Grant. Man, Jack. Gonna, this Jack is gonna... Churchill. He's, he's called Mad Jack. We know that. Yeah, Mad Jack Churchill. Yes, because he was absolutely barking. <laughs> and, he, uh, and, and what's it? Is, is a description he gives in the Grant book where uh, he, he's got his longbow with him. At Dunkirk, or outside Dunkirk, actually, we, we we think we know the house where it was. It's a few miles outside Dunkirk, and um, he's 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 doing all sorts of mad stuff, and uh, he's got his longbow with him, and he said he thought I'll have a go, and he sees this either two German soldiers or, or a machine gun or whatever, but a couple of German soldiers, and he hits the first one with his longbow, and he said it wasn't the look on the face of the guy that he slotted with the arrow, it was the look on the face of the guy alongside the guy who just got <laughs> slotted with the arrow, who just sees his mate with an arrow sticking out of his chest. Um, so, yeah, there's always this big argument about, you know, the effect of the longbow. Um, yeah. And it's a real rabbit hole to go down, an absolute rabbit hole to go down that one. Uh, so eventually they'll get into Calais. Calais um, then itself is this... Once we lose the um, the Hundred Years' War, and there is a peace after uh, uh, for a period of time, uh, but the French come back again under Joan. A bit to do with Joan when we get to uh, St. Valerie. And what happens is, is now Calais become this amazing uh, foothold that we've got in France. Our, our last foothold, people will argue. It's not, by the way. It's not our last foothold. But eventually, Calais, becomes this symbol. It's where we keep most of our gunpowder. 
So that's going to be a problem when Calais eventually falls. And um, eventually, you get, uh, it's the uh, Siege of 1558. Um, and the French being dastardly, you've got to imagine Calais is in what I'd call French Flanders. So it's, a, it's, it's surrounded by water. Yeah. Uh, and it, they, had, they had a very sophisticated defence system around Calais. Uh, and the, one of the parts of the defence system is known as the PAL. And if you go outside that defence system, you have gone beyond the PAL. That's where that term comes from. Right, OK. P-A-L-E. P-A-L-E. Uh, and you had water gates. You had uh, a really sophisticated exit and entrance system of when the gates are going to shut, when they're going to open, and the guard as well, because the French want Calais back. And it's under the... Um, it's under Mary at this point, and she, uh, Queen Mary, and, and she's is meant to have said, Calais will be forever emblazoned on my heart uh, when it falls. Now it falls under the uh, the, the the Duke of uh, the Duke of Guines. He will eventually take it. And if you go into the Citadel, they've actually got this uh, uh, stained glass windows. And it's January when they take it, and the English think, oh no, they can't, they can't come across the marsh. But, of course, the marsh is frozen. So the French come across the ice. They get into Calais. Calais falls. Now, Guise itself, which is just outside, that holds on. So Calais is not the last place to fall. There's another smaller port, a few miles inland, connections to 1940, and it's the last place that we hold in France, you can argue, up to that Tudor period. Uh, what happens is that they, they, they're given the honours of war and the Tudor force in there, the army that's in Guise. It's a great place to go to. It goes back to a Viking period. They've got a lovely church. Um, funny enough, most of the history they tell you about doesn't include the English part of the history, uh, which is a bit weird. Uh, it's, but it's very, very uh, interesting to go to Guines. Uh, as well, you've got a nice church there. It's got a ni- great 1940 connection. And they march out with honours of war, that sort of thing as well. And that's it. Calais finally gone. Now, of course, you've got an area around not far from there between Calais and Guines, an area called the Cloth of the Field of Gold, where Henry VIII comes over. Uh, and, and that's got a lovely info panel. Take the main road from Calais, head to Orgins, and, and, and you'll see that. Uh, and what happens is there's this meeting and these two humanists between the French king and Henry VIII, and they set up this huge encampment with free wine. They have a, a wrestling match, which the French win, uh, and there's these two lads going, you know, we shouldn't really be at war together. This sort of thing, you know, France and England should be together. Now, two of these, by the way, one back nearer to Calais, uh, and the very famous field of the cloth of gold, uh, just up to all gains uh, as well. So we've now lost Callum. That's gone. Last toe holds about six weeks later, gains will fall itself, and eventually that's it. But the argument could be it isn't our last holding in France, because what happens is the new model army under the Commonwealth uh, are involved in the 1650s, fighting up at Dunkirk and the French are so pleased with us fighting with the French against the Spanish, etc. They give us Dunkirk. So for a number of years up to the 1660s, Dunkirk remains in English hands. And when Charles II comes in, 
He goes, yeah, it's costing us a lot of money. Don't really need it. And they flogged Dunkirk back to the French. <laughs> so a bit like your nan giving you a present. And you're going, yeah, great, nan, cheers. And then like, saying, do you want to buy this? It's really good, you know. Um, now, Calais itself as well becomes a huge Vauban fortification. You've got this blue sky thinking uh, siege engineer. You've got the French kings are now coming in during the 16th, 17th century. The French borders up around Flanders need to be looked at, need, need to be solid. So they put these huge fortifications in amongst these cities, towns, Ypres being one of them, of course, a famous one, Montreux, where I'm right away uh, on the French borders of these Vauban fortifications, one of them being Calais. Uh, Boulogne's got another one. Maubeuge is the big one, of course, with the uh, us there in 1914. Um, so through the 19th century, Calais. We know you've got, of course, links with Napoleon. There are French corsairs operating out of Calais. But if you go to Calais, you're going to say, it's not there, Gary. It's all new. Well, I sat on that square in a restaurant, a, a Café de Paris, taking a photograph in the summer, put it on Twitter, and people have said, what are you doing in the south of France? <laughs> yeah. Now, Calais itself, post the Tudor period, post the 18th, 17th century. Um, the next thing I'll stop at very quickly is St. Pierre. Now, there's a very famous lady buried in Calais. And we were talking about the uh, where you've got the Hotel de Ville. There's a park opposite. It's got a very nice World War II museum in, by the way. It was a German naval communications bunker. That's worth going to. But so you're at the um, you're at the park, uh, you're at the Hotel de Ville, you've had your little tour around there, you've gone up the tower. In the park itself, there's a memorial to Eisenhower, there's a memorial to um, you've got the Rodin statues, you've got the park a little bit further over, um, the Gaulle statue, and over in the far left-hand corner is a tablet for a very famous lady who's buried just outside Calais, Lady Hamilton, Nelson's bequest to the nation. Now, she lived in the, uh, the Rue de Paris in Calais. She'd come over to Calais to escape her um, creditors. Oh, and everyone, okay. she's very bad press, Lady Hamilton, very bad press, Lady Hamilton. She gets this thing about she gambled too much. Well, most Georgian ladies of her class would have gambled back then far more than we did. It, it was an obsession. She drank too much. They all did compared to us. They were binge drinkers. You know, you've only got to look at the, uh, the Regency. And they did. And she, she loved a party. Was, you know, not a problem with that. But she, to escape her creditors in 1814, at the end of Napoleonic Wars, she comes over to live in Calais. And... Uh, She's in her mid-40s at this point. She's quite ill. She's quite ravaged. Uh, yeah, Nelson said this was my bequest to the nation. Uh, and she's really dumped on big times in many ways. And she dies. And, and they're going to put her in a common burial pit, literally. Uh, and all the, the siege captains that are in Calais at the time, this is 1815, um, they all band together to get her a proper burial. Now, she's buried in what was a little village outside Saint-Pierre. It's now the church of Saint-Pierre. Very nice church, not touched really by 1940. It got hit by a couple of Stukas, some nice damage to it. It's a lovely square. It's like something out of Gotham City, this square. Just look for the church of Saint-Pierre. 
and she was buried in the churchyard at St. Pierre. Now, a grave is lost. That's a problem. The plaque in the, ch in, in the park near the Hotel de Ville in Calais was a plaque put up by an American society uh, on the anniversary of her death in, in, in 2015. But she, it's, it, it's no location to do with her. It's just a nice little memorial. But there's a twist to this. Where she's buried, Lady Hamilton, and we know her history, and we know what she was, uh, what she was like, a bit of a party animal. She's buried underneath a pub. <laughs> she's got the last laugh. And it's called the Black Horse. So when you go to the church, church was extensively rebuilt in the mid-19th uh, mid century. Look opposite to the left, there's some lovely battle damage from 1914. Um, but St. Pierre now is part of Calais. The lace trade came to Calais from England in the... Uh, in, in the, the mid-19th century, very important at the time. But there's the pub, the Noir Cheval. Somewhere in that area there is where the remains are of Lady Hamilton, which is quite sweet to think of, really. Um, so it moves on then through the 19th century, Calais. Some great bits to look around, Calais. And, of course, the next big thing, as we know, the Great War, um, there's a, one of the officers who was uh, executed quite rightly so, for murder during the Great War. Um, he, he, he murdered a, 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 an MP, military policeman in Calais, or just outside Calais, on the site of a car for, uh, the big car for that you've got at Calais. Um, yeah. Going over down to where all the trucks are. I drive out past the big university, down to where some uh, German ammunition bunkers are. If you're looking at the sea, drive out towards your right. It's a lovely big car for. Um, and now, there was a French, a British officer who had deserted from uh, up at Second Ypres in 1917. He was uh, found living with a young French girl. And he came out, <clears throat> he was stopped by a, where the car for car parkings. And there's a railway line, that, that gives you the clue. And the, um, he was walking out the house and two MPs stopped him. And he said, look, I know what you've come for. And they said, yeah, okay, fine. And he said, I'm going to go back in. I'm going to explain to her family, and then I'll come out, and, uh, and you can take me away. And they said, all right. Well, one of them was up on the railway bank, and the other one was at the end of the garden gate. Uh, and he come out, a French officer, and shot the MP. And he's eventually caught in Calais, uh, and quite rightly executed as well. I'm not sure where he's buried, actually. There's a very good book called Murderous Tommies, and that covers that quite well. Uh, as well. So Calais itself, Hotel de Ville, of course it's besieged in 1940 so you've got a couple of the fortresses around, Fort Risban. Now, as your ferry comes in, look to your right hand side and see where the old ferry port was that was used up until the 1980s. There's the uh, War Memorial for 1940. Of course, the thing with Calais, 1940, the whole of the front's beginning to collapse. Everyone's making their way up towards Dunkirk. Uh, was it the sacrifice of the rifle brigade? I won't really push that too far. Uh, but what we do know, the facts behind it, uh, the defence of Boulogne. Boulogne's going to fall very quickly. And then Calais, because the, the Germans are now moving up towards Dunkirk. And you get this siege of Calais. was quite a big thing. I remember in 1990, they did a big thing at the National Army Museum. 
about the, uh, the the siege of Calais because you had all sorts of issues. They've got territorial lads turning up. Uh, they've not got enough kit. They've not got ammunition for their rifles. They haven't got rifles. Um, and the Germans are, are hell-bent on taking Calais. Now, there are two famous people. They had a brilliant book on Calais, by the way. It's called The Flames of Calais by Airy Neve. Uh, and yet again, you can... The, uh, if you manage to get the Nigel Cave book on the Battleground Europe, the one that he did, uh, the early one, the 90s one, there's some excellent maps showing up the old defence system uh, around Calais itself, which you can walk. You've got Fort Risbands there. You've got the big waterfall outside as well that everyone drives past. Now, they're restoring part of that um, fort up, the last one where they held out on the quay. And when I was there last year, there were still rounds of French ammunition uh, and relics from the battle as well uh, that were lying on the floor, uh, literally on the surface that they were turning up and throwing to one side. Um, so the offer, Nicholson is the guy who's the, uh, who's the defender of um, uh, Calais, the British guy who's put in charge of defending it. Must have been a horrible, horrible thing because you know, you're literally being sacrificed, you can argue at some point. Yeah. Um, and they will fight right the way back across Calais, right the way back, up to the mole itself, up, up to where the landing stages are, and where the new customs office is, that's where they're fighting up to. And Airy Neve talks of being there and amputating a young lad's arm with an axle blade who's stuck under a vehicle on right that point. They moved the memorial when they put the new um, uh, when, when, when they put the new customs thing in. So the, the, the 1940 can walk those elements. And, of course, the canals that lead in, here's a secret one, they do a, a water tour along the canals. And it costs you about two euros. You can buy the tickets in the Hotel de Ville. They'll yeah. show you where to go. It's right by the park. And it takes you out, way out onto the Maurice, onto the marsh. And as you go under all the bridges... You can see all the uh, the bullet marks and all the bridges where they're, they're literally fighting, retreating across the canals that are leading into Calais. Um, and that's well worth doing. So there's quite a bit to see. Now, one of the other great uh, lads who's at Calais, who surrenders, is a chap we all know and love. Do you remember the actor, Sam Kidd? Oh. Sam Kidd. No, you know what? what, what I'm... I'm... I'm, I'm thinking dodgy westerns. Am I right? No. Sam Kidd was in, he was Orlando, which is a big children's TV thing. He played the indomitable British Tommy in about every war movie past 1950. Um, oh, gosh. Yes, I know. Um, Ulsterman. Londoner. Was he a Londoner? Well, who, who am I thinking of? I'm, I'm, I can see Orlando. Oh, go on. Sorry, yeah, go on. Anyway, so um, he actually he, he wrote a very good book called For You, The War Is Over. And if you've got Airy Neve's book to one side, which is you can imagine Airy Neve becomes a Tory minister, you know, uh, gets Thatcher yeah. in condition, that sort of thing as well. The antidote to that is For You, The War Is Over. Now, I managed to pick up a hardback copy years ago, quite luckily. It's quite expensive now. Apparently, his son might be redoing it. Um, okay. But his actions, he's captured in 1940 uh, to, at Calais. And what happens with Sam? 
1938, one of his mates says, look, Sam, why don't we join the Territorial Army? And he went, why am I going to do that? And he said, well, if we get a uniform, we can pull the birds. <laughs> <clears throat> so he says, yeah, that's a good idea. And he says, we went and joined the Queen Victoria Rifles. And he got the uniform. And he said, I did it for a little while. And it just wasn't for me. I couldn't be bothered. And then comes September 1939. And he's at work. And he gets a phone call. And someone said, Sam, your mum's on the phone. They're quite like sort of middle-class families. You've got a telephone for some reason. And um, Sam says, what is it, Mum? She went, there's a policeman here for you. Apparently, you're in the army. <laughs> and he says, well, you better put him on. So this sergeant comes on the phone and says, uh, do you remember when you thought it was funny to join the TA? <laughs> well, get yourself here, son. <laughs> and he had to report. And, and he said, that was it. I was, I, they got me. And he went, they leave from Westmoreland. And the, uh, they leave from Westmoreland. I think they first go to somewhere on the south coast to, to the Isle of Wight. Then to Folkestone. And then they're sent into Calais. Uh, and, and Sam's description is that eye-level worm's eye view of the battle. Uh, where nothing's really going right. And actually, the motorway that you drive down when you're heading south to Normandy... That's gone over that line of open fortifications, which is where Sam was. Uh, and eventually Sam's wounded and captured, and he goes into the bag. Uh, and the reason Sam did the book, and on his first night of capture, is the church at Gings, which was the last English place to fall. And if you go to the church at Gings, as you're looking at the church, on the left-hand side, stairs that go down to the crypt, uh, well, all the lads were camped there overnight before they got marched off to Poland, and that was their toilet. So, um, always interesting, isn't it? Um, now, what happens with Sam was, and why did Sam do the book, was you may remember at the time the TV series Cold It's. Gosh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it was a bit like public school, but I think the food might have been better. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Sam hated it. And there was quite a um, heated discussion on a TV program with Sam. And I think it was with Airy Neve, or certainly the lad who captured, who, who, who broke out with Airy Neve, who'd done the first home run, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, who wrote a book, um, two books about Colditz, Colditz and Colditz, the lad, Pat Reed, of course. And there was this quite heated discussion. Right, and okay. literally, Sam said, Look, for you, Colditz was a bit like a public school, but the food was better. Where for blokes like me, I was captured in 1940 and never got back to 1945 and thought at any time it could be curtains for me. Yeah. And my big obsession was food. And you lot that wanted to escape were just mucking it up for blokes like me that wanted to keep our head down and do our time. And it, it got quite heated. So Sam did his book called For Me the War is Over or For You the War is Over. And if you can get a copy, it's fantastic. Because eventually they're on this death march trying to get away from the Russians. And um, Sam's and a mate have managed to wander off. They've got out of the way. They've wandered off. And they get into this town and they're in Poland. And they hitch up with two girls. So they sneak in with these two Polish girls. And he said, the Russians have now turned up. 
and he said, it's a Sunday morning and I'm in bed with this Polish girl and the door opens and his mate says, Sam, I think we might have a problem. And he went, why is that? He says, well, I've been thinking. And he's like, I'm busy at the moment, you know? And he says, well, I've been thinking, Sam. He says, the Russians are here. And he went, yeah. He says, we don't speak Russian. And he went, yeah. He says, they don't speak English. And he went, yeah. He says, what happens if they think we're German? He says, I think you might have a problem. <laughs> he went, I think we might have a problem. So I said, what are we going to do? He says, well, the girl that I've shacked up with, she knows a Russian officer. And she's going to tell him we're here. And he says, OK, give it a whirl. And of course, then they're taken into protective custody by the Russians, where literally they are used, as Sam can say, as bargaining chips against Russian POWs that the West have got and the Yugoslavians and that sort of thing. Because, you know, it, it has been put forward of British prisoners of war that did disappear into the gulags post-World War II that were taken by the Russians. So, so you know, you've got that Sam kid uh, link as well to World War II, <clears throat> to Calais. Now, Calais itself then, um, in... The Second World War, they'll eventually fight over it again, and it will finally surrender, uh, 1944. Now, that whole area as well, along there, so you, you've got Calais, you've done Boulogne, and, and you're heading along, and you're going further south. You've got all this stuff to do now with the... We've not even got to Montreux now. I can see a second image coming. I can see a second show coming up in a minute. Um, you've got all the World War II stuff going down, which is the Atlantic Wall. Now, once 1940, the Germans have, have now turned up. They're looking at the invasion. That whole area, as you're driving there along the Opal Coast between, between Cape Grenade and, and Cape Fleur, they've got Luftwaffe Airfield set up now. You've got Cape Grenade, which you've got the big uh, memorial for the Dover Patrol on Eagle Day. That's where, um, that's where Goering goes. And they've got a photograph of him standing there at Cape Grenade and he looks across, you know, if, if this doesn't work, they can call me Smith. The memorial itself, the Oblitz, <clears throat> was blown up by the Germans in World War II. They thought it could be used as a navigational marker. So you, that's worth going to. As you're driving along that lovely coast road, you, you, you've come out of Calais. You've gone past a huge, as you go past the, the big water fortress, there's a big railway gun emplacement. They had a number of these railway guns. And they were playing a cat and mouse game with the guns that are over in Dover. Um, and what happened is they eventually look at, you know, if the Allies are going to invade, they're going to invade, they're going to come across this short space of water, 18 miles. Of course, they never were going to come that way. But as long as we can keep the Germans thinking we're going to come that way, fantastic. You know, let them put all this stuff there. So you've got Hellfire Corner where these big naval guns are set up. You've got Battery Tote, Battery Lindemann. Uh, the tote battery you can visit still today. It's been restored to as it was during the Second World War. Uh, a chap called Dave Davis started it in the 1970s. Now, the last, now this is all part, again, we come into the, uh, the Cinderella campaign where they're eventually going to get up to Boulogne, the Channel Ports in Calais. You've got lots of concrete, too many books to go through, but get yourself into battery tote. Now, there was a battery further down the road that's now in big chunks. And literally, there's like 20-foot-high chunks of concrete 
um, sitting by the side of the road. And in the 1950, late 1940s, a couple of kids got into uh, the, one of these bunkers and uh, got way down in the bottom of it. And they thought they found some candles. And what they were for were cordite sticks for the shells. Oh, good God. So they lit the cordite stick and they were in the ammunition room where the cordite had been left. Jeepers. And it blew up. Now, the French also did go through some uh, um, exercises of trying to blow some of them up as well. And they got bored with that, uh, which is why many of them survive as well. Um, so it's a whole new avenue, as you say. You're going down there, you're heading down from Calais, down towards Boulogne. Take not the route Nash, uh, the uh, uh, the major route, the way to Payage, but take the old route Nash now. Go along the Opal Coast. Uh, you can follow the road down on the map. And as you're coming up, or you've already gone past, remember, there's a big mural there for where Blerio leaves. Blerio takes off from there to uh, to fly over to Dover in 1910. There's a great bit in the movie um, Goodbye, Mr. Chips where a lad comes back off holiday and he says, I say, uh, Jeeves, uh, can you see some Frenchman's flown across the channel? And he replies, God, the cheek of it. <laughs> so there's a nice memorial there for, um, uh, 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 for Blerio. There's an interesting little cemetery to go in. It's a concentration cemetery. Most of the lads are uh, uh, died of disease, accident, that sort of thing. But in the little cemetery, almost on the beach, is one of the guys that was involved in shooting a Zeppelin down, a uh, Royal Artillery guy, ACAC unit. He gets a mention. He gets one of those gold medals, the Wakefield medal that was given out. So, so you know, just pop in and say hello. And as you carry on along that road, you, you'll see Cape Grenade, Cape Bronk in the distance. You, you'll drive along. As you drive along that lower road, it's all pockmarked, huge craters. Now, this is from the bombing campaign remember, of Operation Fortitude, which is trying to you know, fool the Germans into thinking this is where we're coming. Um, so they're completely blasting it. The uh, Americans uh, flying out of Essex, the RF, are doing daylight raids as well. And there are a couple of tragic mistakes. But the point I'm going to make first is you're driving up towards Cape Grenade. You see it in the distance. You, you, you can park up on the left. But everyone says, look, there's a statue of a lad on the right. And he looks like he's wearing a golfing outfit from the 1900s. Got a flat cap on, got a scarf. And that's Latham. Now, Latham, uh, was, he was English, but, but born in France. His family had, had gone to France in the 19th century. His father was English. And um, he was a contemporary of Blériot. And he could have flown the channel. But his record that he's got is the first man to land an aircraft on water. Oh. And the reason he did that, because his engine cut out and he crashed in the sea. <laughs> so it wasn't by design then. <laughs> he didn't intend to, but his engine cut out. And uh, there was a problem with a mix or something, and the engine was cold and it cut out and he come down in the sea. So he gets the record as the first man to... Uh, uh, to... And then he had another bash. I'll give it another go. And he ran out of petrol. Um, and, and, and and he didn't get there as well. So twice he manages to do that. So he's eventually murdered in Africa on some safari. Um, but Latham's got a statue there. And then you go up to the top and then you get this amazing view down to Boulogne. And it looks like Cornwall. It really does. And you, you've got Wisson. Now, Wisson 
after Gurin watches the uh, Luftwaffe fly over on Eagle Day 1940, he goes to have lunch in the Hotel Normandy in Wisson. And that used to be owned by a chap called Davis, whose father was a, a Welshman who was in the First World War and remained behind in uh, France after the war. Uh, and that, that's where uh, they used to, it's really weird, you'd be sitting in the restaurant there and they had a photograph on the wall of Goering coming through the same French windows across the lawn to have their lunch. And it had been used a lot by the, uh, the German officers uh, during the Second World War. Originally, because of the light, because of the light, it was a big artist colony as well, all along there, right the way down to its tarpaules, uh, right the way down uh, the coast, almost as far as to St. Valerie. Um, now, Whiston, go on the beach at Whiston, pop in the town, go to the Hotel Normandy, have a beer, um, walk down onto the beach. Now, there's a German submarine on that beach from the First World War. Yeah. And what happened was uh, it got stuck in the shoals and the German crew, like, what do we do now, sir? Uh, we can't get out. So um, they, they says, OK, the, the, the German guy, the captain, he gets all the crew off and they're sort of walking along the beach when up turns a Belgian cavalry unit and captures them. So it's the only submarine captured by the cavalry. And actually, you know what? On that note, I, I think I think we need to continue this in another one, another podcast, actually. Oh, we've got uh, Itarpals, we've got Joan of Arc. At, uh, <laughs> we need to come back because because I, I feel awful for cutting you in your throat, but I'm sort of you know I'm mindful of of, of time. Oh, no, I've got to go out to dinner. Fixing <laughs> a burger, very free. Now we're opening up here. Oh, it's all right. For, all right for some. Well, it's it's next week. It's all opening up, and then it'll be closed the week after, or something daft like that. I don't know. Um, I I think we need to carry on. Well, we need we need to do a part two on this. Most definitely. Yeah, I mean, because this is why, as I say, there's nothing to see. But we've spoken for nearly two hours, and we're really just covering Boulogne, Calais. And that little bit of the Opal Coast, there's still Mimiet to do. You know, there's still St. Omer to do, the, the home of the RAF, I would argue. You've still got Etarples to do, Montreux, GHQ. And as the, the holiday programme said, there is nothing to see for 100 miles. Yeah. <laughs> do you, well, yeah, I, I, I won't say anything about the. Uh... My, my, some of the people I know who work in television, but I will say that sometimes the eight, late 80s, early 90s television programming was a little bit uh, myopic. And we'll, I, we'll leave it was, I remember someone saying to me, they said, oh, Gary, you know the holiday programme was really popular. And I said, well, why was that? Exactly was, it because, yeah. was it because people come in from tea and they had their tea and they just switched the telly on and watched something? They said, no, the reason it was really popular was uh, and it got quite a lot of viewing figures. Whenever they went to Spain, at some time after seven in the evening, there was a chance you'd see a topless bird on a beach. <laughs> and on on that note, right, we're gonna, <laughs> Gary, we're going to have to get you back for a part two on this. This is definitely a feature length. We're going to get you back on part two. Um, send me send me a text or a, a tweet or whatever for yeah. um, for part two, and then we can cover Joan of Arc, GHQ. It's Arpels. Um, you've got all the nurses down at It's Arpels as well. Of course, you're here of Britain. 
Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to stop you there because we're still recording. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to thank you for, for your time this morning. We'll have a quick catch up at the end. Um, listeners, uh, this this was something I think neither Gary nor I thought we'd sort of end up doing possibly two, possibly three uh, parts. This is, as, as, as always, uh, Gary, thank you for your time. Clearly done a huge amount of research, using a huge amount of local knowledge and your knowledge and sharing it with us. I'm going to try and get as many of the links um, in as I can into this, this program description. Do have a look um, at yourself. An awful, you know, there's just so much information that Gary's kindly shared with us. Um, so I'm going to press record um, until Gary comes back to us. Um, thanks for coming back to the, to the Agents Lounge. Um, help yourself to a port on the way out and um, we'll speak with you very soon. <laughs>